When we lived on Lookout Mountain in Georgia, we would see uh, snow on rare occasions, but what we did deal with more frequently was ice. It would sometimes rain ice, often throughout the entire night. When you woke up, the sun shining brightly in the bitter cold, and you looked outside after an evening of ice rain, it was breathtakingly beautiful. The 20-foot tree in our backyard, so covered with ice that my kids could and did climb to the very top of it as if walking on frozen water. Now, the mistake that one could easily make is to fail to see through the beauty of it to just how dangerous it was. Power lines down due to the weight of the ice, no traction for your car, even four-wheel drive vehicles were going to uh, slide around. And even though Lookout Mountain barely qualified as a mountain, it still could be quite intimidating when the roads were nothing but a sheet of ice. So you might wake up on such a day, somewhat enthusiastic on this ice day, simply because of the beauty of it, but pretty soon the difficulties that accompanied the ice would make themselves known. And sometimes the grumbling would start, the questions about what are we going to do now, and that kind of thing would begin. That cycle, enthusiastic beginning, unveiling troubles, leading to complaints or perhaps worries about provisions, that pretty much describes the wanderings of God's people in the wilderness when coming out of Egypt. And that is the context here for the preacher's warnings that are going to follow. In, in our context, this sermon we call Hebrews has made it clear that Moses and, and all of redemptive history was building to the revelation of God's final word, who is Jesus. He has caused us to think about the place of Moses, the giving of the law, and he continues with that historical reference as now we are looking at what happened during the 40 years they spent in the wilderness before they entered the promised land. The Exodus had an enthusiastic beginning. But within one week, less than seven days, troubles arose and the complaining started. Worried that although God had brought them out of Egypt, they accused the Lord of not being able to provide for them as they journeyed. During that time, they went through what the writer of Psalm 95 called the great bitterness, the time of testing when the people were going to come face to face with the Christian life's ultimate question. Will you trust the Lord and His Word, walking faith-filled in humility with and in the promises of God, or will you put God to the test by demanding he prove himself to you, thereby revealing that your heart is hard and rebellious? So the preacher is now asking his hearers, he's asking us to think of ourselves in this historical context. Here we are making our way to God's promised future. Will we make the same mistakes that the wilderness generation made? To underscore the point, as you no doubt noticed, he quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And he's going to come back to that psalm, as I mentioned, over and over again. And that psalm will stay front and center all the way into chapter 4, about verse 10. The psalm begins with a, with a call to worship and praise. We used it as our call to worship this evening. 
an invitation to be joyful, to make a joyful noise, filled with, with thanksgiving for our God. He is the rock of our salvation. Our response should be, must be, that we kneel, we, we bow down before him. What else is there to do? He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. But then in verse 7, the mood changes and changes abruptly. The psalmist, remember, is writing hundreds of years after the Exodus, but he recognizes the same thing that the author, the preacher of Hebrews, recognizes. Namely, that it will matter decisively whether or not the people of God in the wilderness or in the United Kingdom of Israel or in the day of the apostles or in the 21st century. I say it matters whether the people of God will hear the call of the Lord to give ourselves fully to him in repentance and obedience and humility, or, well, we're not. And the Lord was clear in David's day, in the context of Hebrews and in ours, that if we harden our hearts, if we live grumbling against the Lord, thinking to test him, thinking that God somehow is beholden to our agenda and what we want, well, then God will turn his back. The psalmist said, God, God will loathe us, and there will be no rest for such a person, no rest for such a people. And, and note this, the ancient word of God is a message of perennial relevance. These people can make precisely the same error that, that Israel made in the wilderness. And if they do, if they make the same error, they will suffer the same fate. And of course, the point is, so will we. The psalmist, the preacher of Hebrews says, Today, today if you hear his voice, the writer of Hebrews believed passionately that God had acted once and for all in Jesus the Messiah, and that as a result, the new day had dawned, the day for which Israel had been waiting with anticipation. They had been living in what you might call tomorrow mode long enough. Now it is today mode. So what are you going to do today? And the text implicitly admits that there are days of testing. Back to Hebrews 3, this is in verse 8. There are days of testing, and we know this. There are many passages of Holy Scripture that speak to our faith being tested. God tested Abraham. He called him to sacrifice Isaac. In the wilderness, Moses was quite clear that God had come to test them to see if they feared the Lord. It's Exodus 20. Verse 20, and if you are wondering, yes, it is in perfect keeping for God to test you, and no, we are not to put him to the test. Oh, wait a minute, God can test me, but I can't test him? Correct. But that's not fair. Really. You want to talk about fairness? Perhaps not. And if that bothers us, I think it only to be an indication that we have failed to understand who God is and who we are. 2 Corinthians 8 tells us that the afflictions that we endure are for our testing. We are told in 2 Corinthians 13 to test ourselves, to see if we are really believing. 1 Thessalonians 2 says that God tests our hearts to see if we're trusting Him or if we're trusting in men. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive 
the crown of life. So the question is not whether or not our faith is tested. The question is, what will our response be when our faith is tested? And the psalm says that when the church in the wilderness was tested, despite all that God had done for them, they thought that they would turn the tables and test Yahweh. And what is the Lord's response to that? Find it in verse 10. He was provoked. He rendered judgment because he says they always go astray. But it's the next three words that become very important for us. They always go astray in their hearts. And that is the proof that they don't know the Lord or his way. Now I want to say something that is the most important thing you will hear today. And you are going to be tempted to discount it because, well, it's not anything you haven't heard before, but I would humbly ask your forbearance. It is easy to look like a Christian. It's easy to do Christian things, to speak Christian words. But the question is always, what is going on inside of you? What are you hiding? What are you running from? What are you thinking to ignore by distracting yourself? What bitterness might you be covering up with psychological verbiage or busyness? What story are you telling yourself? Where is your heart? Don't fool yourself into thinking that all is well because your outward life looks to be in order. The place where we go astray and the place we go astray first is in our hearts. That is where the bitterness lies. That is where the resentment is fostered. That is where the lack of love is flamed with excuses and justifications. Remember, and you all know the text, man looks at the outward appearance, but God weighs the heart. And it's there in our hearts, in your heart, in mine, that God makes the judgment of whether or not we know him and whether or not we are familiar with his ways. Again, verse 10. Very important. God doesn't judge us by our actions to see if we know him and his ways, at least not only that, not even primarily that. The Lord is going to see if we know him and we know his ways. He's not going to look to what everyone else sees. He is going to look to that which only he sees. We have hurt and pain, sins that we don't know what to do with, and with them guilt and shame. And we can often believe the lie that as long as we keep them bottled up, as long as we keep them in, we will be okay. But that's not the way it works. Verse 12, the preacher picks up almost as if a commentary on Psalm 95. He says, take care, be careful, pay attention. One translation says, see to it. Another translation says, beware. This thinking to test the Lord, harboring sin and malevolence in your heart, and this warning to Christians to look out. For you might be nurturing an evil, unbelieving heart. You say, well, where does that lead? Well, he tells us. That will lead you to a forsaking of God. It will harden your heart to the Lord, to others. And it has a diabolical goal to lead you right into unbelief, to lead you right into evil. 
And so the preacher then gives us a practical remedy, a practice or, or a habit to embrace so that we will take heed, so that we would not be uh, taken captive by an unbelieving heart. And here is your admonition, verse 13. Exhort one another. Find people who love you enough to tell you the truth. The Christian community is to be a place of love and acceptance and mercy, but it is also to be a place of truth, which is the same thing as saying it is to be a place of love. Now, the reason we might not want our hearts revealed, our sins exposed, is that we don't want someone seeing us clearly, and we don't want them telling us what we don't want to hear. So you might think to yourself, well, fine, I'm just going to make sure I never tell you what I think and what I feel, what's in my heart. That way, you can't rebuke me for it. Okay, don't. But if you don't, then you are locking yourself, you are locking yourself up to you. You are giving yourself to your own heart. This has disaster written all over it. The psalmist is often found asking the Lord to test his heart, to know his heart, to create in him a clean heart. And he even asks the Lord, whatever you do, don't turn me over to my own heart. And then in Psalm 66, he confesses, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. You need people in your life to exhort you, to call you out, to point you in the right direction to interrupt your heart's thoughts and plans because so often they are simply self-baptized arrogance. And that is why you have the church. We are told to exhort one another. Perhaps you're thinking, okay, I I see the point. I I need to be exhorted once in a while. I get that. I should avail myself more to my brothers and sisters that they might exhort me once in a while. Nope. What does the text say? Exhort one another... Every day, as long as it is called today, every day. Why? Because sin is so deceitful, it is so insidious, that we don't even recognize the beginning of its hardening effect. So let's be blunt. What are we to take away from this text is not so much a sudden collapse of our faith, but the gradual dulling and the hardening of our hearts, the the slow, even unrecognized slipping. That is what the preacher is warning against. The hardening of our hearts by the deceitfulness of sin. Christian Christian people do not ordinarily turn their backs on the Lord in one moment or in one event. No, they, they drift away without first even knowing what they are doing. Perhaps they're even hotly denying that their faith is slowly disintegrating. This is how it might work. You start off by doing something or or thinking something, embracing something, wanting something in your heart, something small, but something you know you shouldn't, you shouldn't want or do or pursue, or something that you, you know is a gateway to something else that you shouldn't want, think, feel, or desire. But I got this, you tell yourself. 
I won't let it go down the road as far as it has for others. Soon this thing, this thing you're doing or thinking or wanting or desiring, this thing becomes a habit. And you stop believing that it's really all that detrimental. And if the question is raised, you are ready, ready with answers. And you see, once our hearts have been deceived, then the habit will continue unmolested. And if a habit continues unmolested, it becomes part of your character. This is what happened to Israel in the wilderness. Just read that account again. These people were so excited at the victory of the Exodus. They had seen amazing things. They had promised their fidelity to the Lord over and over again. Even when they needed a rebuke and they were punished for their disobedience, they seemed several times to repent. They seemed to have learned their lesson. They had the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire to remind them of God's presence. All they had to do was open their eyes and see it. If ever there were a people, so we might think, who were beyond doubting the love of God or beyond doubting the power and provision of God, surely it was this generation. But no. And we're right to ask the question and to wonder, what happened? And Hebrews is telling us. Their hearts were made hard by the deceiving nature of sin. That is the point the preacher is making. That what happened to them could also happen to you, to me. They were repeating, if they weren't careful, the error of their ancestors. In other words, the temptation to permit our faith to to wither on the vine, this is a perpetual issue, a warning to be sounded to all generations of Christians and to be sounded often. The, the, The temptation is so real and so powerful and so relentless that if we are to take it as seriously as the Bible says we must, then we have to encourage one another daily regarding the deceitfulness of sin. For the wilderness church, when things got difficult, their hearts failed them. This is much much like Jesus' words regarding the different types of soil and the seed that was planted. We read for some that they believed for a while, but soon the trials and the sorrows of this life became too much. And because there was no root, They withered. And it's interesting, it doesn't say they were uprooted. No, they withered. Withering takes time. There are many, many folks who have made a genuine beginning and who desire to be faithful, who are real, are real in their love for the Lord. And these folks, we folks, need to be exhorted as to the deceitfulness of sin so that we will persevere. That is the application, if you would, of the sermon. The power to deceive is at work all around us every day. We live in a culture that is so sin-sick and sin-deceived. People will believe all manner of things that in order to believe those things, they have to eradicate multiple facts that stare them in the face. They are happy to believe what they want to be true, even as the evidence counter to that to that which they feel, is mountainous. Why? Why do they entertain... Surely you've asked the question. Why? How can you entertain convictions that you will contradict then in your own thoughts and words over and over again? How does that happen? Why does that happen? Because sin has deceived them. 
We see it everywhere we look. It is the explanation of the world as we know it. And the book of Hebrews is quoting the ancient scriptures. And this preacher is putting us on notice, putting you and me on notice, that we must be wise, that we cannot allow this to happen to us. Malcolm Mugridge lived, well, he was born, I believe, in 1903 and died in 1990. Uh, Mugridge was, um, he was a writer, a columnist, kind of a social philosopher. Uh, He um, was a communist. He embraced the Communist Party early until he saw through it and then became someone who spoke very violently against communism. He was in the British service during World War II and he was a spy, He then became a Christian, an outspoken Christian, and he writes beautifully and brilliantly of the Christian faith. If you ever have opportunity to read Malcolm Muggeridge, please take the time to do so. Here is what he wrote. The saddest thing to me on looking back on my life has been to recall not so much the wickedness I have been involved in, the cruel and selfish and egotistical things I have done, the hurt I have inflicted on those I love, although all of that is painful enough. What hurts most is the preference I have so often shown for what is inferior, tenth rate, when the first rate was there for the happy. Like a man who goes shopping and comes back with cardboard shoes when he might have had leather, with dried fruit when he might have had fresh, with paper flowers when the primroses were out. Alas, so much of my life has been pursuing this fictional good while being forgetful of the other, the real good that is ever inspiring and ever renewed. So the message this evening is simple. Be careful. The sin that seeks you, the sin that you already know, is deceitful and it goes after your heart and in your arrogance you will think to deal with such on your own by yourself and that is exactly what this deceitful enemy would want you to do so ask yourself who which Christian friend knows you and loves you enough to tell you the truth no matter what to speak into your life daily And even though you might not like what this person has to say to you, you know their words, their love, and their admonitions, although maybe painful, they are in fact the kisses of a friend. And if you don't have that, and if you're thinking right now, well, I don't have that in my life, I don't have someone like that, then I pray you heed the warning from God's word. You by yourself, You are not enough. No, you can't handle it by yourself. You can't. I can't. Listen carefully. Today, if you hear his voice, today, if you have and are hearing his voice, do not harden your heart. Amen. Gracious Father, for the grace to see, for the courage to call out what we see, for the humility 
to cry out to you to change our hearts. Father, grant us these things by the power of your Spirit. We know, Father, that you are able and we know that the Christ is sufficient. Help us that we would not be deceived into thinking anything else, but that we would cling to you, that we would walk closely to our elder brother, and that we would live by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, Father, do this for us, your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.